Hello and welcome to Cocoa Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. This is where we talk about all the issues about the health of a mother. My name is Dr. Bola Sugade. I'm a birth certified obstetrician gynecologist, a family physician, a minimally invasive robotic gynecologic surgeon, and a proponent for natural childbirth. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Gerald Tawanda Tarira. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Tarira. Thank you for having me. Dr. Tarira graduated from the University of Zimbabwe College of Health Sciences in 2000. He works primarily in Macon, Georgia, and he actually just moved to a brand new location. He is the Chief Medical Director of Southern Lung Center. He specializes in critical care medicine, internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, pulmonary diseases, and sleep medicine. Dr. Terreira is affiliated with local hospitals in the Middle Georgia area. Dr. Terreira, can you tell us about your name, Tawanda, your middle name? I find that fascinating. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Tawanda is actually a native name in Zimbabwe in the language of the Vashwana. And what Tawanda means is basically a woman has had more than two children and it's implying that the family is growing wow thank you thank you so much that's educational also the conditions you treat include bronchial asthma chronic bronchitis insomnia not being able to sleep pulmonary embolism that is a clot in the lungs and sarcoidosis you are also a specialist for critical care of people. That is correct, right? Yes, that is correct. Yes, I am uh, board certified in pulmonary disease and critical care management of adult patients. And of course, that includes some obstetric patients. Wow. You know, and this brings me to my very first question. Why would a pregnant woman be admitted into an ICU intensive care setting? What are some of the common reasons that you see? Of course, the bigger common reasons include acute respiratory failure from multiple issues, which we will delve into. We do have postpartum hemorrhage, which is a frequent complication. The pregnant patient is also subject to multiple other complications, which are common also to the general ICU population, including sepsis, including DVTs, which are clots in the legs. Also included in this, frequent infections of the kidneys or something we would call nephrolithiasis or urosepsis. Wow. Thank you. So basically you are saying that, you know, the leading causes of ICU admission during pregnancy or in the postpartum period will include things like just respiratory conditions, hypertensive conditions that have gone oh, yeah. very bad, yeah. massive obstetric hemorrhage, and sepsis or infection. Yes. You also talked about uh, other conditions like kidney stones. So there are other conditions also, like a pregnant woman could also have trauma. You know, a pregnant woman could have very bad uncontrolled diabetes or she could have other gastrointestinal conditions like pancreatitis or maybe a ruptured appendix or a bowel obstruction. 
they could have overdose of medication or poisoning mm. or even neurological disorders that could make them land in the ICU, right? Yes, that is correct. There are diverse pathology and multiple conditions, which we can delve into on a single subject basis and maybe discuss further so that the patients are better educated about what to anticipate with the any possible evaluation in the ICU. So in, in the United States and in similar developed nations, yes. what would you say? I mean, do you see a lot of pregnant women in the ICU? How many, what is the estimate of pregnant women that end up in the ICU? Yes. So in terms of pregnancy in the ICU, we are lucky that the numbers are not as bad uh, because, of course, uh, being in the ICU is a big indicator of mortality. About 1 to 10 in a 1,000 deliveries is uh, kind of uh, what we see. With uh, mortality in the ICU in the developed nation ranging about 3%, whilst in the developing world we see about 14%. We see that when patients are admitted to the ICU, their outcomes are fairly good in terms of the obstetric population. Well, so, you know, basically you have said that out of 1,000 deliveries, about anywhere from 1 to 10 of those patients will end up in the ICUs. And when we look at the percentages of women that end up in the ICU, most of them have a postpartum that they have delivered. That is about 60 to 90% have delivered. And most of the pregnant, because you said once they are admitted, the outlook can be good. So most of the people admitted do not require major life-saving interventions, but rather they require more intensive monitoring than that can be provided on the antipartum or postpartum units. That's correct. That is correct. Yeah, usually the cases uh, that end up in the ICU essentially are for monitoring of things like your oxygen saturation, frequent follow-up of your blood sugars, and patients who just need uh, general monitoring for like blood loss and uh, possible blood transfusions. Those are the general type of patients that end up in the ICU. We will get delve into the sicker population, their management as we go forward in this podcast. You also did mention that you know the once you, a woman is in the ICU, a pregnant woman, that the chance that she can she might die actually also depends on the country that she is in, and in high income countries like America, you said that that. Uh, chance, which is the maternal death rate after ICU admission, is about 3%. So maybe 3 out of 100 women might not make it out of the ICU in high-income countries, whereas in low-income countries, it could range from anywhere from 14 out of 100 women, and that could actually be higher. How long, and I guess this depends on the condition with which the woman came into the ICU with, but what is the median length of stay for women admitted into the ICU? The median length of stay in the ICU for women is usually about two days, 
for those admitted antepartum and about a day for those admitted postpartum, meaning post-delivery. The maternal death rate after ICU admission differs significantly, of course, like we've mentioned, between the high and low-income countries with about 3% in the high-income countries and 14% in the low-income countries. And so when a pregnant patient comes into the ICU, we have two patients. We have, of course, the mom, who is the primary patient, and then we have the baby, who is also a patient. But we have to make the difficult decision of choosing one patient over the other when it really comes to that. Can you explain to us the main principles when you admit a woman into the ICU? Yes, the underpinning principles that the woman's interests are paramount Mm -hmm. and optimum filial status is generally predicated on optimizing maternal condition as much as possible. So meaning the mother is more important than the fetus at all points during care. When we optimize the care of the mother, the fetal outcome is better, but always the mother's outcome is going to supersede everything. And indeed, when we do our testing and interventions, we can modify medical intervention and diagnostic imaging to any extent based on the pregnancy. But again, when indicated for maternal health, nothing should be withheld. You know, none of these medical interventions or diagnostic imaging should be withheld purely for fetal concerns. This is correct. So a pregnant woman or anybody's admission to an intensive care unit is indeed a big deal. Like you said, it's an indicator for mortality that this is very serious and the person could die. And the patient can make it or not make it out of the ICU, depending on which country in the world where they, they fall sick as a pregnant woman. Can you talk to us about, you know, how, you know, different countries have a different number of intensive care beds per X amount of population? And some countries are actually better than the United States. And the ICU admission also speaks to a higher level of nursing care. Can you speak to some of these things for us? Yes. Uh, Intensive care beds are actually quite a scarce resource, as we know. What we find is that in high-income countries, they range from three ICU beds per 100,000 in the United Kingdom to 25 beds per 100,000 in Germany, with the United States having about 20 beds per 100,000 of population. Generally, in the United States, the ICUs are distinguished by the nurse-to-patient ratio, usually one is to two, meaning one nurse is looking after two patients, and also the presence of really well-specialized equipment for monitoring the fetus and the mother and for general organ support. You know, there's great availability of ventilators, as we've seen with the recent COVID crisis. The United States did perform well. This uh, ratio of beds, uh, Germany tends to have more beds available just based on how they built out their ICUs to the general population. Of course, when we look at the developing world, the number of ICU beds is much, much less. 
Oh, well, so for patient, if you see a family member or a loved one who just had a baby display certain signs, you must cry out, run out of the room for help, demand a bedside evaluation of your loved one so that they don't die. And there's a national society, the National Partnership for Maternal Safety, that they proposed certain things that a patient or a family member of a patient sees that will make them demand care to be escalated, even including to an ICU level. And I know that as an OBGYN, I have had to do bedside evaluations of such patients that nobody else was looking at, that even the nursing staff was about to miss. So there are certain maternal early warning criteria from the National Partnership for Maternal Safety. What are the things that will make a mom who is pregnant or who just had a baby be a candidate for care that needs to be escalated to maybe an ICU setting? That's a great question. One of the important caveats to really note on this is vital signs are vital. The National Partnership for Maternal Safety proposed vital sign parameters are intended to trigger a bedside evaluation by the treating physician with escalation of care as needed. Uh, so what are these vital signs? A very low or very high blood pressure. When the systolic blood pressure is less than 90 or greater than 160, or a diastolic pressure greater than 100. A very low or very high heart rate. So a low heart rate will be less than 50. A high heart rate will be greater than 120. A very low or very high respiratory rate, meaning how quickly you're breathing every minute. If it's less than 10, we consider ICU. If it's greater than 30, we also consider ICU. We also monitor your oxygen saturation without oxygen on. If your saturation is less than 95, that is a trigger for us to consider transfer to the ICU. We do monitor your urine output, meaning how much urine you're making an hour. Typically, the nurse will be asking you to put urine into some kind of receptacle so that we can monitor that. If we have less than 30 mils an hour for greater than two hours, we consider ICU. When the patient, the mother, exhibits agitation, confusion, or is unresponsive, we have to consider transfer to the ICU. There is an element of what we call preeclampsia, which is really uncontrolled hypertension where the mother can exhibit a non-remitting headache or shortness of breath with chest pain. In those cases, we also consider ICU transfer. So all this is saying is vital signs are vital. So if you happen to be in the room with your loved one and you notice changes, you might want to alert the nurse who can escalate care and uh, possibly the mother has to be transferred to the ICU. Well, thank you. You know, I wanted to add this next question because I recently heard of a case like this in which the recently delivered woman did not make it. 
what are some of the consideration in transfer of a woman? If a woman delivers and she develops some of these symptoms that you talked about, what are some of the considerations in transfer of a woman and to where? So this is a very interesting question actually relates to when I did fellowship in New York, we had multiple hospitals within the same area in Brooklyn, but we used to use two particular hospitals just because they were used to taking care of that high-risk obstetric patient. So if pregnancy is complicated by critical illness, a patient should be cared for at a hospital with obstetric services, with an adult ICU, and also advanced neonatal care services. And also, the hospital should have services such as a blood bank. Of the nearly 5,500 acute care hospitals in the United States, 12, approximately one-half offer obstetric services and approximately 1,500 have neonatal intensive care units. So, of course, that kind of limits the hospital to which your loved one can be transferred to. In cases in which higher-level maternal care facility is required for critical ill patients, consideration should be given for transport as soon as the need is identified and the patient is in stable condition for transport. So, of course, we never transport patients who are unstable would rather keep them at the facility, get them medically stable before transfer. In some cases, the receiving facility may need to help the referring team stabilize the patient for transport using the available resources at that place. Transfer back to lower levels of care may be appropriate after the original condition has resolved. Thank you. So, you know, before we move away from this ICU topic, you know, when the woman has had massive bleeding after delivery or she's had like infection that has now become sepsis because it's all over the body and the patient and the provider has actually made the right decision and the patient is now in the ICU, what exactly do you guys do when the patient gets to the ICU? Yeah, so what we do is really intensive monitoring. And how do we do this? We do monitor normal blood pressure, but sometimes we have to put some catheters into your arteries to monitor the blood pressure. And why would we do this? When we have those patients who come in with high blood pressure or preeclampsia related to pregnancy, we sometimes have to give them medications that acutely lower their blood pressure. So because we are acutely lowering blood pressure, we do have to monitor the blood pressure more accurately and minute to minute. The other thing that we do, we are able to give a lot of blood products. As you know, with delivery, sometimes there is hemorrhage. And when there is hemorrhage, we end up having to give a significant amount of blood. And when we're giving significant amounts of blood, we do have to replace different factors. Not only do we give red blood cells, we also give platelets. We also give what's called fresh frozen plasma. And that's 
done in different protocols. As those protocols are somewhat time-consuming, it is important for that patient to be monitored in an ICU setting. So the reason usually for us to see these patients in the ICU is they require somebody available minute to minute as things change for the mother who is post-delivery or pre-delivery. Wow, wow. Thank you so much. You know, also in the ICU, I know you give intravenous blood pressure medications that cannot be normally given in a postpartum flow. But, you know, just even in keeping with this ICU talk, there's a high prevalence of respiratory problems that can complicate pregnancy, ARDS, or even sepsis, you know, especially in developing country situations. And now on top of that, we also have COVID. Can you maybe review with us in layman's terms what your experience has been with COVID admissions into the ICU and maybe you've even had the experience of maybe managing a pregnant patient with COVID that had an ICU admission? Yes. Unfortunately, with uh, COVID and its onset and its uh, prevalence, we've had multiple experiences with managing patients with COVID pneumonia. What COVID does is it causes an acute lung injury, which is not unsimilar to what we are discussing, what you mentioned, which was acute respiratory distress syndrome. Essentially what this is, is it's a diffuse inflammation of the lung parenchyma, which causes that lung to become hardened. As the lung hardens, it becomes harder to oxygenate the tissues. So when it's hard to oxygenate tissues, you don't get good blood to your brain, to your heart, to your kidneys, causing what we call multi-organ failure. And usually because we can't oxygenate these patients, they end up being put on ventilators. And when you're on a ventilator, you do need to end up in the ICU. Pregnant women are at increased risk of developing ARDS and, of course, needing a mechanical ventilation. I'm trying to link up COVID and ARDS so that we understand that the COVID pneumonia behaves in the same fashion as the ARDS pneumonia. However, the recovery rates that we're seeing in women post-COVID are not as good as those for patients with ARDS. The reason is we are seeing more of what we call thrombotic complications. When we say thrombotic complications, we're talking about the clots. A pregnant woman is already predisposed to forming clots, and COVID is a vasculitis. It affects the vessels, not only in your lungs, in all your tissues. And as it does that, it causes more clotting. So it's as if you have added clotting from pregnancy and clotting from COVID, leading to more clotting and poorer outcome for those obstetric patients. We also need to mention what is sepsis. Sepsis really is a generalized inflammatory process 
throughout the tissues which can be directed from infections, trauma, and even from pregnancy. So what sepsis is, is basically that your organs are not working as well as they should because usually they are not well perfused. And what we see is in sepsis, we are trying to alleviate those effects. We're trying to make sure those organs continue to function. And it is a leading cause of maternal mortality. We do know that women, because of pregnancy, are predisposed to infections, especially in the kidneys and in the bladder, just because the uterus is there. So we do find a lot of cases of sepsis. And when we find sepsis, we give antibiotics, we give fluids, and usually we see improvement in the outcome of that patient. And, you know, for sepsis, you know, like, like you mentioned, it can be a very serious condition. It remains one of the leading causes of a mother actually becoming very sick, maternal morbidity, or actually dying, maternal mortality in pregnancy. And, you know, I know just even from my experience as an OBGYN, treatment for sepsis is predicated on timely suspicion. That is, you just like really, you suspect and you jump on it. You give fluids, you give antibiotics within the first hour of your diagnosis because every hour of delay in management is associated with an increase in mortality for these patients. And they can go from just a simple infection to sepsis and to septic shock. What are the symptoms of sepsis? What can lead to sepsis and what are the symptoms or signs of sepsis? Yes, so sepsis can come from infection, can come from trauma, can come from collagen diseases, can come from malignancy, can also occur secondary to chemical exposures. What sepsis does is it leads to generalized tissue hypoperfusion, meaning there is not enough oxygen being delivered through the blood vessels to the tissues. And as that happens, the organs which need the oxygen fail, meaning your heart needs oxygen so you can have a heart attack. Your lungs need oxygen so when they don't get enough oxygen, they harden. Your kidneys need oxygen, so when they don't have enough blood in your kidneys, you can't make urine. So that's generally what sepsis does. It's a state of hypoperfusion. So what can we do about it? We give a lot of fluids, and as correctly mentioned, the timeliness and the appropriateness of antibiotics is very important. Multiple studies have shown that antibiotics give, given within one hour of presentation will change outcome for these septic patients. The biggest study ever done in sepsis was actually the Rivers study, which uh, showed that if you manage to give 30 mils of fluid per kilogram within the first 24 hours, we see a clearly improved outcome. Yeah, thank you for just touching on, you know, sepsis and acute respiratory 
distress syndrome yeah. because these are very this can be life threatening conditions and a leading cause of maternal morbidity and mortality. And just in wrapping up with sepsis, if we're just going to summarize the information for us with sepsis, what happens that makes a woman septic that she needs to go to the ICU? What are the things that we are seeing in her symptoms and signs? signs. Yeah, so symptoms and signs of sepsis are multiple and diffuse. We tend to think of sepsis as, like I've mentioned, a condition of generalized hypoperfusion. So when you don't have good perfusion, you can have altered mental status. I'll start from the brain, walk it down. You can have altered mental status. You can have encephalopathy. You can have confusion. When we come down into the chest, you're going to have hypotension, meaning there's not enough blood pressure being seen by your tissues. In the lungs, you're going to have more what we call hypoxia, meaning low oxygen saturations. And those low oxygen saturations are going to worsen outcome of all the other tissues. We go further down into the gut, you usually have the GI tract not working well, so you have what we call an ileus. When we go to the kidneys, we tend to see acute kidney injury with a low urine output. And when you look at the skin itself, most of the time you're going to see mottling. And the skin tends to turn blue because there's not enough oxygen in those tissues. So those are kind of the generalized signs and symptoms that we see. Now, when I go further into the management of sepsis, which is important, especially for this pregnant mother, the important things that we do on presentation in the emergency room is we're going to do an assessment. And after we do an assessment, these days we now activate what we call a sepsis code. And this is something new that has come from Medicare, where they want patients with sepsis to be looked at acutely and have interventions done early. What kind of interventions are we doing? We are putting central lines. What a central line is, is it's a, a special catheter that we put into the main vessels in the body. The intention of that catheter is for us to measure the central pressures. Usually we measure something called central venous pressure and we do have a goal with that. Our goal is to keep it above 12. So usually 8 to 12 is about the range where we want to keep this measure of CVP. And why do we use CVP? CVP came, again, as I'll mention, from the River study, which uh, was evaluating the impact of giving fluids in the ER and ICU for patients with sepsis and maintaining that CVP between 8 and 12. The other goal that we have is urine output. We want urine output to be at least 30 mils per hour for every patient in the ICU. So usually when we look at those two goals, we are able to kind of know that we're giving enough fluid. But it's not only about fluid. The other part that we really have to deal with in sepsis is your blood pressure or perfusion pressure. And we measure something called mean arterial pressure. We like to keep that above 65 and that's where, for this pregnant patient, we're going to have to start giving medications that will increase the blood pressure. There are typically two medications that we have 
traditionally used. It's either levofed or dopamine. And the outcomes that have been shown show that levofed is much more effective than dopamine in improving blood pressure in the septic patient. So in the septic patient, we use level fed. The other main thing that we do is we're going to give antibiotics. Our antibiotic selection is going to be based on the likely source of infection. And of course, in a pregnant patient, we always have to watch out for those antibiotics that are contraindicated in pregnant patients. So those are kind of the interventions that we do. We don't intubate every septic patient. Unfortunately, if the pregnant mother is having difficulty with oxygenation, then we might have to put that patient on a ventilator. Wow, wow, thank you, thank you so much. And uh, you know, talking about breathing and on a somewhat lighter note, why do normal pregnant women seem like they pant or breathe fast or are breathless all the time in their pregnancy or later in the pregnancy? Yeah, so uh, as a pulmonologist, actually, this is a, a very important question. 